the world is harder to navigate than when I was a teenager. I passed notes in class between classes with friends. I had call waiting on a rotary phone. It is not, <laughs> it is not the same world. Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 150. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, first, I'd like to thank you all for your warm reception of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life, out September 4th from Baker Books. I've loved seeing it in your hands and meeting so many of you in person so far on book tour. It has been an absolute delight. Treat your shelf and grab a copy wherever you like to get your new books, and I would love to see you on book tour. In the weeks to come, I'll be in Florida, Texas, Colorado, Denver, Olympia, the Bay Area, and Nashville. Get my full schedule with details at annbogle.com slash events. That's Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L dot com slash events. If you've read it and enjoyed it, your review would mean the world to me at any major retailer or on Goodreads. Thank you so much. Readers, I'm so excited about today's episode. You might expect all language arts teachers to be huge bookworms, but today's guest, Julie Mushkin, shatters that stereotype. Until recently, reading was a means to an end in her life, and the type of book that totally turned things around for her, it might surprise you. Today, we're chatting about serious book projects, what to do when you have no reading stamina, and infiltrating the not-so-secret world of teens through literature. Let's get to it. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you today, especially because around here we have a community of avid readers who really love to hear other readers like whispered, you wouldn't believe this about my reading life kind of things. And as a language arts teacher, you have a good one that really surprised me to first find out about because we know each other off the mic and off the internet. So first of all, you're a language arts teacher professionally. I'm a language arts and social studies teacher. I didn't know about the social studies. Yeah, I'm credentialed in social studies and language arts for elementary and middle school. I'm credentialed in social studies for high school. My background is actually in history and religion. And my master's degree is in women's history and women and gender studies. So my educational background really lied more in social studies. And that's what I taught 20 years ago before I had children. But um, in the last 10 years, I've also really worked in language arts. I worked for a company that writes assessments and was a language arts expert. I was asked to teach language arts and social studies. So it's a merge of both of my academic interests. And yet you confessed at the end of the school year to all the parents of your students that you were not a reader. That is true. Okay, tell me about that. Well, the good thing was that the parents knew me by that point. So parents of my upcoming students probably might be a little scared by that confession. Um, I did run it by a couple of people first to make sure that I wasn't going to freak everybody out when I said, you know, I have a confession to make. I'm not a reader Um, because as a language arts teacher, you would expect that 
we would all be crazy about reading and read avidly in our free time and read and love everything. And that's just not the case for me. Um, I think it's one of the things that actually makes me probably a better teacher in that I can identify with students who don't always love to read. It's not that I don't enjoy reading, but the thing that I said to my parents was that until recently, I used reading more as a means to an end. And um, as somebody who was in kind of a high pressure academic situation in college and read for content in history and religion primarily, didn't read a lot of literature because that wasn't what I was studying, and then went and did teacher credentialing and then went and got my master's degree, I was always reading for content and I was always reading to further my knowledge on a subject or get somewhere else with it. And for the first time in the last couple of years, but primarily this year, I've really enjoyed reading for pleasure. So what being a teacher has done for me is given me this opportunity to read for my job, but read for pleasure at the same time. And so it's completely changed my view of reading and appreciation for reading because I've been able to engage with so many different kinds of books and not just be reading for content. You know, my big point to the parents was that when we're so busy, sometimes we only read what we kind of have to read, whether it's for our jobs, for even to help a child with a school project or whatever. And we don't always just get to read what we want to read. And I was lucky enough this year to really jump into mixing reading for pleasure and reading for my profession and have had this opportunity to read all of these incredible books, which has completely changed me as a reader. Did you have a moment or a realization or a conversation that made you think, okay, I, I want something to change here? I did. I felt this at the end of my first year. We had a number of books that were selected for seventh grade and they're wonderful books. I mean, it's To Kill a Mockingbird and The Outsiders and books that I loved and that a lot of students really did enjoy. But I found a bunch of kids were not engaging with these books. And it was really troubling to me because I didn't want to feel like, okay, I'm the teacher who's teaching To Kill a Mockingbird. And this is an incredible novel and one that really should be remembered and enjoyed and savored. And yet I felt that that was lacking. And so it was like, well, why is that lacking? And it really connected to my experience of reading, which was, you know, teachers would assign books and they could be these great books. I grew up in Salinas, California. That's the home of John Steinbeck. All we read was John <laughs> Steinbeck and supposedly all of these amazing books. And yet when they're assigned and they're given at school homework and maybe you're rushing through them, you're not enjoying them the way that I think that they're meant to really just be savored and not just taught. I mean, authors don't write these books to be taught. They write them to be transformative. And so I kind of connected that to myself and thought, well, if I was in my class, what would I want to read? And I feel like I kind of have low stamina for reading at times. I have a job that takes a lot of energy. So at the end of the day, I always felt like, okay, well, reading was another thing I had to do. And what has happened is I've realized that when I'm reading things I love, 
it's not something I have to do. It's something I want to do. It doesn't feel like a chore. So I really had this kind of epiphany about like, how do I make reading not feel like a chore for me and for them? How do I start to pick new books? So I said to the school, can I change what we're doing? I I just kind of intuitively feel like I want to change things. I want to change the book selections. I want to offer many selections. I want to kind of look at genre studies instead of just one book for the class, because not every book resonates with every person. It has not with me when other people are like, I love John Steinbeck. And I'm like, it's not my favorite, you know, and luckily I'm at a school where they said, yes, please go for it. We trust you to do this. I mean, there was sound data and I went to my colleagues and talked about book selections and our amazing, incredible librarian, Lindsay Serrano, who you will probably hear me gush about again, and kind of started to really interview teachers about what they love to read and why and what books, you know, maybe I should be teaching. That kind of spurred all of this. And then I was so lucky this year to have this incredible group of readers. I had a larger class, but I had a lot of kids who loved to read, kids who wanted to talk about the books that they loved. And the more that they told me what to read and the more that I started reading, it just avalanched in the most wonderful way because we were like, oh, but what about this book? But what about this book? And it just kind of caught fire. And so that reading challenge I did was really motivated by my students and by The idea that like, I want to pick only books that are nines and tens, books that kids, no matter, you know, what they enjoy, what genres they enjoy, whether they like to read or they actually don't know that they like to read yet, that they're going to pick up this book and really like it. And that maybe it will get them reading more because I personally, I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old well, my almost 15 year old, and she loves to read and will read the phone book. (laughs) And my 12-year-old does not enjoy reading right now and is set to be in my class next year. (laughs) So, you know, I think about kids like him and like me, probably as a kid, I was a very good student, but not a kid who just read for pleasure. I try to find books that are going to excite him as well. You know, I sent this letter off to the parents that said, I'm going to make this confession. I'm not a reader. Because until this year, I really was not a reader, I think, in the sense that I picked up a book to just really savor it and enjoy it and let it move me and not feel pressured to get through it as quickly as possible. I think that I finally probably understand what your listeners already get. It just took me longer to get there. I did not realize the extent to which this was inspired by your students. You keep referencing this challenge. Would you tell me the details? About halfway through the year, we had done two genres. We do genre studies in seventh grade. So we had talked about Hero's Journey. Then we had talked about Dystopian. And we were on to historical fiction, which I had the most choices for the students in that genre. But I had a couple of students who came to me and were like, you have to read this book. Now, when a kid comes and says, you have to read this book, you know, you really should read the book. (laughs) Because for one, if a student's really excited about a book, there's something to it. And for two, if I'm showing them 
how engaged I am and how, you know, committed I am to their lives and to being an advocate and all of that, you know, I want to share their passions, you know, and these were actually two boys that came to me and said, you have to read this book. And it was the same book. And it's one of my top three. So I'll talk about it in a bit. But they said, you have to read this. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have so many things to read. I have so many things in my stack. And it was again, feeling that pressure of like reading for my job rather than reading for pleasure. This happened right before our winter break, which happens in February. And for the first time ever, my family was going to be going somewhere without me. My daughter was invited to go with a friend for the week that we were off. And my son and my husband went to visit his mom and we're going to be gone for four or five days. I am somebody who really enjoys being alone because I'm a pretty big introvert, but I was still left with like, okay, what am I going to do for this whole break? And all of a sudden, I kind of had an epiphany because it was right around the start of Lent. And I had decided, you know what, I'm going to make a Lent challenge, which was kind of that 40 days idea. I'm going to try to read as many books as I can in the next 40 days, which school wise was basically from our winter break to our spring break. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm committed to making this a priority and I want to read as many as I can. My goal was 40 books in 40 days. After about the first week, I thought, oh, I can hit 40 books in 40 days because I read 13 in a week. Oh, my goodness. Because they were gone. So I just sat and read. Wow. It was the middle of winter and I was like, okay. And I went to the library and I just like sat and read and hung out with my dog. I'm not a big TV watcher. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, I'm going to read. After that, I was like, oh, I can hit 40 books in 40 days. And then, you know, school started back up and we have parent conferences and all that. So I didn't quite hit 40. I finished 32 young adult books in that 40 day challenge. What was amazing about it was that I just learned so many things about myself and about my students. And I think as a parent, it brought so many lessons that I didn't anticipate because I have these amazing readers. I'm sure that they know that they inspired this challenge and what you took away from it. I talked to them about writing this article to send to their parents. I'm pretty straightforward with them. And anything I send to parents, I always send to students and get their feedback you know, they know that I was somebody who would have said I didn't really love reading for pleasure or didn't even have the time before I became a teacher. And then when I became a teacher, that it still felt like it was always kind of just trying to read to keep up. And that this year has been really transformative for me. And you did share these reflections with the parents of your students. And it made me laugh. You said that basically... Reading 32 YA books plus eight hours a day in the classroom when it wasn't winter or spring break means that you basically spent six weeks swimming in and maybe at times drowning in teen drama. Yes, I did. <laughs> and I actually really just do live seventh grade. I mean, <laughs> my daughter was in ninth grade last year. My son was in sixth, so they're going to be in 10th and 7th. But it's this idea, um, especially at a smaller school where I have 49 students last year. I knew everything about everything, whether I wanted to or not. And I love it. I love seventh grade and I love feeling like they invite me into their lives. But it was a lot of teen angst in 40 days. <laughs> <laughs> you kicked off your article with a statement that you said you were afraid might make the parents riot, but it was about the parents' role in their teens' lives. Would you tell me about that? So one of the things that I did in this article was I said that these are kind of five big messages that I would like to kind of share or big lessons I learned. 
in this challenge. I had many more, but I kind of condensed them down to these five bigger lessons. And the first one was that parents play a critical but peripheral role in teenagers' lives. And it's not that I'm saying that as a sweeping message to all parents in the real world. I'm saying that in these books, that is the overarching theme. Parents do sit on the outside most of the time because the teen has to be the hero. And it's funny, as I was starting to write this, the idea of the hero's journey came to me. It wasn't something that I had thought through until I sat down to write this. And I wrote this very, very quickly. You know, we studied the hero's journey, but the whole point about being a teenager is that you are the hero at that point. You are the one who is descending into the pits of hell. You are the one who is fighting the demons. You are the one who is trying to see who are the allies, who are the shapeshifters, who can be trusted, who can't be trusted. You know, you're the one on this journey of transformation. You're trying to make peace with parents. The hero's journey really does play out really well when you're talking about young adult fiction because the teen has to learn the lessons. And so in these books, the parents are supportive, but they are not the main characters. In some ways, I thought, okay, don't hate me for this because I'm saying you have a peripheral role. But the bigger message is, is that in almost everyone I read, the parent is there when the kid needs them. When things go wrong, they do go to the parent. The parent is an ally. They're the mentors that can teach them. So it's okay to be on the periphery because there's a safety net. And I think that teens want to read about other teens or other people having some level of new independence, but they like to know that the parents are still there and they're the safety net. Parents stay, you know, in a very critical role. They just move a little bit out of the center. I think that that's healthy for the parents and the teens, but the young adult fiction really reflects this idea. Mm -hmm. They're supportive. They can be trusted, but the teen has to learn some of the lessons and make some of the mistakes. Yes. And I noted how you said that your experience in reading all these books and what your students liked was that teens clearly want to read about these strong parent-child relationships where the parents are mentors and guardians when they need to be. I get questions in my inbox every day that says, oh my gosh, my kid wants to read fill in the blank young adult novel. How bad is it? Because it's scary to have your kid who's suddenly not a baby anymore wanting to read about um, eating disorders and mega friendship drama and worlds falling apart. And parents are squeamish about that. But why are teens drawn to those books? Teens want to read books that reflect their reality. And while not every kid experiences all those problems, they live in a world where teenagers do experience those problems. So they're on social media or they're on Tumblr or Instagram or whatever. And they, you know, look up to celebrities and there is this dialogue. And a lot of teens do experience anxiety and a lot of teens do experience depression. The world is harder to navigate than when I was a teenager. I passed notes in class between classes with friends. I had call waiting on a rotary phone. It is not the, it is not the same world. They want to read books that reflect their experience and I think that this is one of the things where when I asked people at school, can I teach these books? where I had a little bit of like what well, how are parents going to react to this? Especially in my last genre which is identity and I picked some difficult books. I sent out a letter to my parents saying, "Here are the books in order of 
you know, most challenging material to the least challenging material. And please have a conversation with your child about what book is appropriate for your child. But I'm offering these because I think that there's a message in all of them. I think that as parents, we have to push ourselves out of our comfort zone with, you know, the idea that kids can read about things and that that doesn't mean that it is planting seeds in their head to actualize those issues. My daughter is in high school and if she said, I want to read this book and I felt like it was really challenging, I would probably just say why and let her read it because if there's something in her that feels like she's drawn to understanding that issue better, then I need to trust her with that. It's not like it's a handbook for how to be. These aren't things that are new to our children, unfortunately. And I think that the opportunity it presents for parents is to have really difficult conversations in ways that feel less threatening to their kids because they're about fictional characters and not about your own children or their friends. Right. So if you, you know, know that your child wants to read a book that you think is a little bit more difficult, I would say read the book too, and then talk about it. You know, this is their world. We talked about how the issues that teens are encountering in these YA novels are often not a handbook for how to live, but they're really reflecting the issues that are already present in their lives. And yet I appreciated the way that you said, don't let the book have the final say in how your kids feel about these issues. Everyone can benefit if the parents really engage in discussions about how issues were resolved and what the kids did in response. And would you tell me a little about that? Yeah, um, I really feel that is true, especially when it comes to sexual relationships in teen books. I don't pick any books in my class that characters engage in sexual activity in the book. I do feel like when it comes to more mature relationships between characters that the books tend to be a little bit lacking in boundary. The characters don't have healthy boundaries at times. And again, teenagers don't always have healthy boundaries. Adults don't always either, but the relationships are overly simplistic. They get wrapped up very quickly. Characters move in and out of relationships quickly. And that happens in adult novels. But I think adults have a greater context for like where to put that and how to visualize that. That happens on TV shows and in movies. But we know that doesn't always reflect real life or the pain of you know, breakups or what it does to you when you are in a first year, first relationship. And I feel like um, that's the one area that I say to parents and to teens, like you need to be having discussions if those are the books you're reading, because parents need to teach their children about healthy boundaries. They have great messages and there's great openings for conversations, but they're just starters for conversations. This shouldn't be the end of the conversation is that book. Yes. I love the way you put that. And you noted that The problems in YA fiction are often extremely realistic, but I love that you're thinking of these books as conversation starters, not the answers to how to address those problems. One thing I did note was that there are times in which things get really messy in life and parents want to sit and talk it through forever and kids don't. (laughs) I am the one who like wants to analyze it and break it down. And my daughter's like, I'm good. Teenagers, a lot of them have this really great ability to move on pretty quickly. You know, we have to remind them of times when they shouldn't move on so quickly, Mm -hmm. but that sometimes we need to follow that lead because 
I can't overcomplicate things. Everybody who knows me and is listening <laughs> is laughing. And my students are probably laughing. I can overcomplicate things for sure. But these books don't. They wrap things up really nicely. And I can see why that appeals to kids because they like to move on to the next thing. And that's not always a bad thing. Julie, it makes a lot of sense then that before we talked about you coming on the show, you said you were looking for equally interesting and valuable books for both adults and teen readers. With that in mind, can we dive into your favorites? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, and I really hope we get to hear about some of those YA novels. One book that wasn't quite for you and what you're reading now, and we will talk about what you should read next, especially with an eye towards books that adults and teens can enjoy. Maybe not side by side, like on the sofa with their arms around each other, but that they can have good conversations about if parent and child are reading them. What's your first favorite? Okay, so my first favorite is the one that kind of spurred this whole challenge, which is called Sight by um, Neil Schusterman. And it was the book that two of the boys in my class said, you have to read this book. This is the best book we've ever read. It is a book I would never pick up on my own. (laughs) I'm somebody who claims not to be the biggest fan of dystopian. And I say I claim that because every dystopian book I actually read, I love. I devoured The Hunger Games. I love The Giver. So there's all of these books where I say like, oh, I'm not a big fan of dystopian. And then I pick up a dystopian book and I can't put it down. Well, Scythe is one of those, but so much more complicated than that because it is about a futuristic time in which humankind has evolved to the point where we've conquered illness and death and disease. And there's this kind of overarching power called the Thunderhead and it regulates humankind. And the only thing that they need to do to keep the population healthy is they glean the people, which means they kill people to keep the population down. And Scythe are the ones who are responsible for this duty and they are very well respected. So there's this population kind of of government sanctioned killers. So it seems very grim. And, you know, the first hundred pages, I honestly was a little bit overwhelmed by it because I scare easily. So I don't read horror. Mm -hmm. It wasn't scary, but it was intense. Started off pretty dark. And it was talking about these two children who get picked to be the Scythe apprentices. That's how you train to be a scythe and you leave your family. And it's like, well, you're training killers and there's a girl and a boy. So I put it down after 100 pages and I never really put books down. I either dump them and don't pick them back up or read right through. And I put it down for about a day and read another book in the middle and then picked it back up because it was sitting with me. It was like, well, these kids loved this. And there was something about the story that was really engaging. When I picked it back up, I read the next 300 plus pages that day. I mean, I could not put it down. It literally, I could not put it down. It was a fantastic book and there is a sequel. It is a trilogy. The third book is not out yet, but the second book just came out in January. So when I read this in February, I was able to immediately pick up the second book, which is called Thunderhead, which I loved just as much as Scythe. They're big books, but again, they were so highly recommended by some of my kids. And then the minute I read it and came to school, I was like, oh my gosh, I love Scythe so much. You were so right. Then about 15 kids in my class read it as well. And then I told all of the teachers, I was like, you've got to read Scythe. One of my colleagues has my copy right now. And I know a number of the other teachers read it. 
it is very smart and adults will love it. It is definitely not just for young adults. That sounds amazing. And I've seen this, I've seen the cover and I thought, nope, not for me. So I'm glad that we got to hear you talk about it today and that your seventh grade boys asked you to read it. Julie, what's another favorite? I could cry about this book. I love it so much. Um, it's called Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe. It's by Benjamin Science, Mexican-American writer. It is just a lovely, lovely book about two boys and their very deep friendship, kind of about finding their own identity, discovering sexual identity. There is that element in this book, a beautiful really uh, meaningful way that it's discussed because one of the boys comes out in the very beginning as gay. They have this amazing friendship and it's how do boys navigate a deep friendship. The parents have a beautiful part in this story, especially the father of Aristotle, who is a veteran and has come back from a war and is not able to really speak about his experience. And it's about feeling like you can't talk and you can't be vulnerable and you can't be expressive. And this book is challenging all of that. I loved the characters. I loved the message. At the end of the book, the parents just respond to the characters in the most exquisite way you would ever hope to respond to your children. It is very much about self-exploration. It does have more mature themes. It does have references to drugs and alcohol. But again, it's done in a very responsible way. I would recommend it to everybody. It's beautiful. I read this after you said you loved it so much. And I need everyone to know that Lin-Manuel Miranda reads the audiobook, which is how I read it. Oh, well, then that just makes it even better. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't hurt. And did you enjoy the book? I did. It was not at all what I expected. It was also a title that made me go, huh, when I saw it in the bookstore, but I did enjoy it. It wasn't what I expected either. It was one of those books that I enjoyed the whole way through, but then the way that it resolved, it took it from an eight to a 10 to me. I did not expect that at all. Like I didn't think there was time. I didn't either. No, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you listened to it. And that's awesome because everybody loves one man. Uh -huh. I was thinking about reading it and that made up my mind for me. Yeah. Julie, what's another book you love? So this one is actually sold as probably adult fiction. And it's one that I am saying is something that could be read by teens and adults both. It is probably one of my top favorite books of my life. And I just read it about two weeks ago and then told everybody I know to read it. I posted <laughs> it on Facebook and I made my husband read it. My husband has just become a reader this year as well. Um, it is called The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. And I couldn't love a book more than this book. I just thought it was the most fantastic historical fiction. I didn't want to put it down. I read it in less than 24 hours. It's about 450 pages. Like there was not one moment in this book that lost my attention. I definitely skim when I read. And I tell my students that that's okay. That's one of the rights of the reader. The rights of the reader, you know, you can put a book down. If you need to, you can abandon a book if it isn't for you. There are so many beautiful books in this world. If you feel like you need to skim at times, you can. And I just kind of do that naturally. I did not miss one word of this book. I thought it was so fantastic. It's about two sisters in France during World War II when the Nazis occupied France. It was so wonderful. I loved every character. I felt so emotionally connected to them. I did cry a lot. <laughs> and it wasn't just because of the tragedy. It's just the humanity of the book. 
I have kids that I taught last year that the first day of school, I'm going to go find and say, you have to read this book. (laughs) They will devour it. It's a fantastic piece of historical fiction. I just loved it. Wow. That's high praise. And my daughter is reading it next. Ooh. Ooh. I like that. Julie, what's a book you're not so crazy about? So the one that I'm not so crazy about is kind of what I consider the C minus version of Aristotle and Dante, Simon versus the Homo sapiens agenda, which I know probably would not make me popular with some of my students because there is the movie out right now called Love, Simon based on this book. And I know that There are so many kids who have loved this book and felt like it spoke to them. And I understand why. It's about a boy who is gay and he is not out, but he has this kind of secret relationship with this person that he doesn't know who it is. And it's just over emails and things like that. And it's how he's kind of coming to terms with his own sexuality it's entertaining. It's not that I didn't enjoy it, but I was waiting for kind of the big action, which it didn't happen. It was just like, here's the story. There wasn't like this epiphany. There wasn't, you know, some twist in the plot. I didn't really feel like there was a big climax to the book. I also felt like it was a little bit more explicit. And again, it wasn't like there was a bunch of things happening that were really explicit. It was just kind of some of the language, you know, and and language generally doesn't bother me because again, teens use language and, you know, most of us do. And so the books reflect that. But there was just a number of things about this book that I felt like if you're drawn to that book and that subject, then pick up Aristotle and Dante. Watch the movie then, Love, Simon. But the book to me was a little bit disappointing. I wouldn't say I hated it. I think I rated it a seven out of 10, which to me means like you could really take it or leave it. I had high expectations because a number of kids said that they loved it, loved it. And I was like reading it and kept saying, well, does it get better? I'm waiting for it to get better. And I I found I skimmed a lot. The thing was, it was valuable because then I still talked to them about it and was like, well, why did you love it? And I didn't. So there was something really valuable in that part of it. But I did find that I got a little bored. That's something we talk about a lot in my house, especially now that it's summer reading season. And my kids have read some books that they loved, like that they've called top 10 books ever. And that's really impressed me. But they've also read some books that they didn't enjoy so much. And something we've talked about a lot is, first of all, you need to be able to articulate why, like why didn't it work for you or why didn't it speak to you? And also you cannot enjoy it, but still be able to say what was interesting or unique about it. And those will help you build your own reading life. Yeah. Julie, is there a book that you're in the middle of right now? I am not in the middle of one, but I have a huge stack by my bed, probably about 10. Most of them are young adults. Some of them are adults. I have The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna, which is I her next I was book. wondering if you'd read that. I have not, but I just got it um, because I loved her other one. I have The House of the Scorpion, which I had my husband pre-read to see what he thought, which is a dystopian Um, I have The Girl in the Blue Coat, which is, again, adult fiction, but it was recommended by one of my teen readers. Uh And so I think it might be one that can kind of cross over. And then I have a bunch of other books for school. I have Sun by Lois Lowry. I have The Lightning Thief, which we talk about in seventh grade. I have a book called The Uglies um, by Scott Westerfeld for dystopian. I have a book called Homegoing, which is an adult book, but Lindsay Serrano, our librarian, said it was her favorite book of last year. And then I have a book called The Narcissism Epidemic, which we're reading as a, it was one of our staff selections for our summer reading as teachers. 
So I'm going to be reading that one as well. Interesting. Besides the one for our staff selection, they're all like, you know, they can sit there for a while. I'll make my way through them. But if you have any suggestions for books you think I'd love, those can definitely wait. <laughs> and I, I can grab yours. Well, you're a fast reader. You can probably finish those by the end of the week. And then yeah. you'll need something else to read next. Okay, Julie, what we're looking for are books that are equally interesting and valuable to adult and teen readers. And also, I know that you don't want to waste your time on books that might have underlying merit, but don't hold your attention. Books that keep your attention is really big for you. Also, I'm well aware that you've read like all the recent award winners. I don't think that I need to be recommending those to you because you are going to find those just fine. So I'm going to give you at least two adult books and we'll see. A resource for listeners that I'm sure you already know about is if you are looking for books for teens that aren't just in the YA section of the library or for books that you and your teen might both enjoy reading at the same time, check out the Alex Awards from the ALA. Those are books that the Library Association chooses every year. They're 10 books every year that are written for the adult market, but have special appeal to 12 to 18 year olds. And that's a great source for finding books. Some of the ones we talked about today and some very popular ones that you might not think of as being teen books that teens really enjoy, like The Martian or or the Diane Guerrero book, In the Country I Love. Um, there's a lot of memoir and nonfiction there and a lot of fiction. It's a great place to look for recommendations. Julie, for you, I'm wondering about a book that has sold a gazillion copies, not marketed to teens, but I think teens could really enjoy. It's Before We Were Yours by Lisa Wingate. Do you know it? This really has been a runaway bestseller. It has sold so many copies. So you've probably seen it on an end cap someplace if you've been out in an actual bookstore. And Lisa Wingate has been writing for forever. But this book has just, I think it really greatly surpassed everybody's expectations and how it connected with readers. What I like about it is it's based on a true story with issues that we're seeing a lot in the news right now, but it has a historical setting that gives it a scope and depth that I think really speaks to readers of all ages. And this is based on the real life Tennessee Children's Home Society scandal. This happened in the Memphis area in the earlier 20th century. And this is where children were trafficked. They were stolen from their families. They were usually, usually families living in poverty and sold at exorbitant fees to wealthy families who wanted to adopt. And the story here shifts between past and present in 19. 19- 39, there's a 12-year-old who's taken from her family along with her siblings, very much against their will and implicated in this Tennessee children's home trafficking situation. And in the present day, there's a young, successful, put-together political family lawyer who discovers through a series of events that her family's past is not what she'd always been led to believe. So I think that this could be a book that lots of people are reading right now if they want to be able to talk to their friends and their friends' parents as well. I don't know that that's going to happen at like your family cookout, but it could. You know, my family, no, we probably wouldn't sit around and talk about books, but um, my daughter and her friends do. And so when her friends come over and they're all in high school, they always ask what I'm reading and they take books home from me and share books with me. So um I would definitely be sharing it with them if I enjoyed it. And something I like about it is that there's drama and there is hardship, but it's not manufactured and it's not people overblowing reactions to crises. I mean, it is real life, real issues that continue to be relevant that are really portrayed in a way that lets the reader of any age emotionally connect with what's happening and really feel its weight. Yeah, I love books that make you feel, so that sounds fantastic. Okay. I'm also thinking about an Alex Award winner that is a graphic memoir. And the reason I like this is because for many readers, especially adult readers, it lets them enjoy an interesting, engaging book that for many adult readers is outside 
their usual reading lane. So it's called Relish, My Life in the Kitchen. It's by Lucy Nisley. Think of it as a coming-of-age memoir of food. So it's the story of this woman who's young at the time this book is written, and she's the daughter of two foodie parents. One is a chef, one is a food expert. And what she does through this book is she portrays visually important episodes involving food in her life. And not only why they mattered to her as someone who's growing up to love food and really claim that role for herself and not just as part of her family identity growing up. You know, she has to make it her own thing and not just her parents' thing. But she also talks about how food connects to her identity things she's learned along the way, the important things that happened that involved food in her life. So it's really fun to look at. And two of my children and I both read this book and we had some conversations about, you know, food and family dinner and travel, but we also had some conversations like the word porn is used in this book and they're not talking about porn, but like somebody brought some back from Mexico on a trip or something. The guy at the airport had in a suitcase, something like that. So we had the conversation that was, mom, what does this word mean in a context that was extremely gentle? So I want parents to know that's coming, but if that's going to be coming, this is a great way to talk about it. So I don't want to overemphasize how important that is in this book. It happens on one page, but this is just really fun and delightful and pretty. Looks good on the coffee table. And there are also recipes that you could try and continue the experience, but mostly it's about the story. How does that sound? That sounds fantastic because um, my daughter is a huge foodie too. I know that that would be something that I would definitely want to share with her. You know, recipes have been really important in my family because I lost my mom. And that's one way that we keep, you know, that connection to our past is through making things that she made. And so, no, that sounds fantastic. And I do really enjoy graphic novels. That's genre of books that I've picked up this year for the first time I recently read March volume one, and um, I loved American Born Chinese. And I know that graphic novels are a great way for kids to engage with books in a different type of level than just a traditional novel. So having a graphic memoir sounds really interesting. Okay. I'm glad to hear it. This might be dangerous, but I'm thinking about a YA one for your last. Have you read Nixia by Scott Rankin? I have not, but I have people who swear that I have to read it. It's the best book. I have a couple of kids who said, you've got to read this book. And for some reason, I haven't gotten it in my hands yet. So I have not read it. Funny thing about this book. I actually, uh, the author and I were at an event, at a bookseller conference together back in the fall. And I came home with several signed copies. I was supposed to leave with one. Somehow I left with two. I couldn't persuade any of my kids to read it, even though he talked about it so persuasively because the way he described it, he could have been describing if Julie Mushkin was looking for something to read because he really wanted to write a book that would grab teens. And you know, there's several ways to like get a teen reader's attention, but his way wasn't to be like shock and awe, but was to write a book of substance that had many multifaceted characters in interesting situations that readers could relate to various aspects of. And there's one key narrator, but there's 12 different characters. Uh, something I really like about it, just by the way, is it's diverse, but it doesn't feel plotted. It just feels like this is the way the world is. The world is diverse. And I really liked that. But there are lots of different characters that you can feel as a reader, a special connection to. So there's so many open doors for kids to hook into. But he wanted to write a book that would grab your attention from the first page and would slowly unfold and pull you forward, like ratcheting the tension up and up and up so that you couldn't wait to find out what happened next. 
which is perfect for people like me who kind of have low stamina and tend to not have a lot of endurance if a book starts really slow. Right. You said you wanted books that keep your attention and this one does from the get-go. So I thought that sounded amazing. And I came home and I said, this sounds amazing. And they saw the cover and saw that it was a YA space exploration novel and said, eh, nope. So I donated the copies to the school library. And now just this summer, they've been like, hey, where's that book? Don't we have that book? I want to read that book. I've heard good things about that book. And, you know, cue the mother pulling her hair out like, ah. So we supported our local bookstore and we bought the book. And now there's more Nixia in the world. But I like this as a slow building suspense as you get to know the characters and what brought them together and why they've been recruited for this special mission by the ominously named Babel Corporation. And it slowly revealed what's going on why these specific kids were chosen, what could be in it for them, and what their stakes are, what they can stand to lose. How does that sound? That sounds fantastic. And again, it's one of those books that I probably wouldn't pick up on my own because I tend to think, oh, I don't like sci-fi or I don't like dystopian or whatever. And then every time I do, I love them. And so I have to keep challenging those assumptions and challenge mine alongside kids challenging theirs of like, oh, I don't like that. Because every time that's happened, It's been a book that not only have I enjoyed, but I've absolutely loved. So that sounds perfect. Yes. And that's why I wanted to mention it because so many readers who are not compelled by the words sci-fi novel for young adults are absolutely loving this. Thank you. It's a planned trilogy. The next comes out this fall, 2018, and the third comes out next year. Well, that sounds fantastic. I will definitely get that from our library. Julie, of those books, what do you think you'll read next? I think Nixia, actually, because I feel like that could be something that I would bring into my classroom. And um, I'm always looking for ways to expand our genre choices in the classroom and dystopian kind of sci-fi is what we do second. And so if that's a book that, you know, really resonates with me, then I will probably throw it into the seventh grade selection this fall and see what my students think. That sounds great. I can't wait to hear what you think. And if your students do, I would love to hear about that, too. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Julie, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 150, that's 150, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next Tuesday. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.